welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. I am your host, Georgia Ray. Today, we will be hearing from Professor Jamie Lee. She is a professor of law and director of the Community Development Clinic at the University of Baltimore School of Law. Her recent paper called Turning Participation into Power, a Water Justice Case Study, analyzes what she calls the constituent empowerment model, which was recently implemented in Baltimore. This model goes beyond traditional community involvement mechanisms and has the lofty goal of shifting power dynamics. Professor Lee finds that to be truly effective, Community participation mechanisms must allow traditionally disenfranchised communities to exercise power in a way that is both participatory and adversarial. Her paper, which was originally published in the George Mason Law Review, was selected for recognition in this year's issue of the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review. Today, she will be interviewed by ELI's own Linda Bregan. Linda is a senior attorney here at the Institute, as well as the director of our Center for State, Tribal, and Local Environmental Programs. She is also a lecturer in law at Vanderbilt Law School, where she co-teaches the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review class. Helping Linda conduct the interview is ELI Research Associate Tori Rickman, who works with Linda and Vanderbilt Professor Mike Vandenberg on the LPAR class and project, as well as Jane Dimwobi a Vanderbilt Law School third-year student who serves on the managing board of LPAR and helped pick Professor Lee's article for recognition in LPAR. Linda, Jane, and Tori, I will hand it over to you now. And Professor Lee, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks, Georgia. We are excited to have Professor Lee with us today. Last spring, as part of the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, we hosted Professor Lee at Vanderbilt Law School, where we had a lively panel discussion about our article that was very well received. So I know you'll enjoy hearing from her today. First, just a little more background uh, about Professor Lee. She joined the faculty University of Baltimore School of Law in 2011, where, as Georgia mentioned, she teaches business organizations and the community development clinic in which student attorneys provide legal services to local organizations that promote social and economic equity. Prior to joining the faculty, she taught in the Community and Economic Development Law Clinic at American University's Washington College of Law, and she was also a partner at a boutique law firm in Washington, D.C. She received her B.A. from Yale and her J.D. from Harvard. So obviously, Professor Lee has very impressive credentials, but more importantly, for today's purposes, she has a really interesting and creative idea that we want to explore. As Georgia noted in her introduction, Professor Lee has proposed what she calls a revamped model of participatory governance. She calls it the constituent empowerment model, and we'll call it the CE model today uh, and occasionally remind you what that stands for. And the hallmark of this model is an affirmative shift of power to voices of marginalized constituents so they can influence government policy. And we are going to dig into this, what the model all about, why it's needed, and how a CE model approach is working in practice in Baltimore, Maryland's Department of Public Works. I'm going to hand it over to Environmental Law Institute Research Associate Tori Rickman to get us started. Tori? Thank you, Linda. Thanks for handing it over. So, Professor Lee, you call the constituent empowerment model a new form of participatory governance. 
Can you start by telling us about participatory governments? What does the term mean and why is it important? Sure. So in short, participatory governance means that you take input from the people directly affected by a problem and use their input to solve the problem. And so it's really important because people in power who are usually tasked with solving problems, you know, example, bureaucrats, politicians, bosses in the workplace, these people don't usually see or understand the problem nearly as well as the people who are actually being affected by it. And they also don't know what solutions might actually work best for people's lives. And so they can also have competing interests or false impressions of the problem that distract from the main goal of creating truly effective solutions. So participatory governance focuses on solving problems using the input of the people most directly affected. It's great to hear about the importance of participatory governance. And soon we're gonna jump into discussing your new take on participatory governance. But before we do, I'm curious, what inspired your interest in the topic? So I worked for many years as an affordable housing lawyer at a small firm called Reno and Kavanaugh. Honestly, it really bothered me that the tenants who we thought we were helping were so often entirely excluded from the governmental decision-making processes that really impacted their lives. And in fact, the tenants were often harmed by what we were doing as lawyers. And that was really troubling to me. And that's despite laws that were in place that were specifically meant to give tenants a say. So I wanted to create better ways to involve real people in the governmental decisions that affect them. Yeah, thank you for sharing your experiences that led to the creation of this article. My next question is, what are the challenges that arise in traditional participatory governance approaches that you felt needed to be addressed with a revamped model? And just how potent is the need for the CE model? So unfortunately, there is a lot of lip service to quote, listening to people. And it's far too easy to just claim that the public was consulted, but not actually make real change based on people's opinions. And so cosmetic participation like this is a really common problem. And it happens most to low-income people and limited proficiency English speakers, black and brown people, and other people who are already excluded from traditional power structures and who lack traditional forms of leverage to impose accountability on the government. So to me, it's really crucial that if we are going to use participatory structures, then we have to create better systems, systems with more integrity, where there's accountability and a structure that will make it harder for people in power to ignore public input. That was really helpful background information. Thank you, Professor Lee. I want to hand it over to Jane now so we can dive into more details on the model. Thank you so much, Tori. Professor Lee, to start off, can you talk about the ways the CE model diverges from existing participatory models? Sure. So in short, the model does three main things differently. First, it focuses on making it easier for people to give input. You can't consider input unless you have robust um, and freely given input from people. So making it easier for people to give that input is key. Second, it requires that the input be given certain weight and that the input affirmatively be used to drive policy changes. 
And so the law that we um, implemented in Baltimore has certain standards requiring that the input given has to be weighed, considered, and drives the policy reforms that are made. And third, the model builds in a number of accountability mechanisms so that if the input is being ignored and things aren't getting better, then actions can be taken in response. That's really great. Um, and getting into the article a little bit more, uh, you identify Baltimore as an appropriate laboratory in which to stress test a CE constituent empowerment model approach. Can you elaborate on how racial and economic factors may perhaps demand this type of effective participatory governance? So in Baltimore, the city water department had a track record of really dismal customer service. And this is a multifaceted problem, but just as one example, for years, customers have had unexplained water bills in the thousands of dollars for no apparent reason. And many people haven't been able to get a single person at the water agency to talk to them about this problem or try to resolve the issue. People were losing their homes due to tax sale. People were going without water because their water was shut off because they couldn't pay their bills. And, you know, these, this is a citywide problem. It doesn't only affect racial minorities and poor households, but it tends to affect, especially low-income households, more, right, because the bills are so high. And when you don't have water, you don't have um, food, you don't have access to basic hygiene, you can't go to school, you can't go to work, right? Or it's actually just much, much harder to do those basic things. And so all of those things also hit people without that financial cushion and without the ability to get water elsewhere or to support themselves in other ways, it's going to hit those people the hardest. And so when these issues came to a forefront through my work through the community development clinic, we saw an opportunity to try to make some changes. I started thinking about how this was a really great opportunity to try to get the water agency to listen more to the people, listen to their problems, really understand what was happening with them and actually try to solve them. Thank you so much for that, Professor Lee. You also discuss what you call a prerequisite to implementing the CE model, specifically that the more powerful party must be required to address the needs of the less powerful. How did this work in Baltimore and what incentives ultimately led the city to adopt the model? So years of problems like the ones I was just describing with water billing, years of problems like this led to a lot of constituent dissatisfaction. And this led to city council hearings, to hours and hours of angry testimony by residents at these hearings, floods of phone calls to council members, nearly constant media coverage. And so all of this motivated the city council to pass this new law that enshrines the constituent empowerment model. And it makes water both affordable, so there is an aspect of the law that has a sliding scale based on how much income you make and makes water affordable. And then it also institutes the CE model. 
So giving a little bit of background on the article, the CE model adopted in Baltimore establishes an infrastructure for two critical functions. First, resolving individual customer disputes, and second, reforming customer-facing policies. Uh, for resolving individual disputes, customers can choose among several options, including working with the Office of Water Customer Advocacy and working with the Appeals Advocate. Can you discuss the theory behind this approach and how it works in practice? Sure. Well, one thing that Baltimore has been lacking is a basic appeals process, so just a way for water customers to appeal their bill. So now in the new law, we have a traditional administrative law hearings process, but we also have a customer advocate's office who can work more one-on-one -on -one with customers to look into the actual experience of the customer, check out possible causes of the billing problem, help determine if there's a leak, help the customer apply for assistance programs, um, and importantly, it's not just limited to water bill problems, but to really any customer issue. So sewage backup problems, which is another major issue in the city, um, problems enrolling in discount programs or in payment plans or communication barriers. So the customer advocate takes a more holistic approach and specifically they take a problem solving approach. So it's not a one dimensional adjudication. And importantly, it's a participatory approach because the customer is personally involved in working with the advocate to explain the problem and to help figure out the design of their own solution to the problem. And moving to the second function, how does the CE model encourage systemic change through those policies? So systemic change is really crucial in situations like these because you can resolve, say, 10 disputes every day, but if you don't fix the underlying problems, then you wake up the next day with another 10 people with the same problem. So the customer advocate's office also takes everything it learns from working with all of the individual customers and aggregates that knowledge to understand the big picture of what is going wrong for customers on a larger scale. And the office also aggregates its knowledge on what solutions seem to work best for most customers and then turns those solutions into policy proposals that are designed to improve customer experiences across the board. So in this way, by listening to individual people about their concerns and helping them find individual solutions, the advocate also learns how to improve policies globally um, so that the same problems don't keep recurring in the future. Professor Lee, thank you so much for diving into these components of the CE model. It's been really helpful to get your take on how people power in Baltimore has improved the water system. I suspect Linda will have even more questions to go over with you regarding other components of the CE model in Baltimore. Yes, Jane, in fact, I do. It will not surprise you. Um, you know, and I just want to say, listening to this, this approach just makes so much sense based on my work at the local level here in Nashville and, and in other cities. So, uh, Professor Lee, I was hoping we could return to something you touched on earlier, which are the three what you call essential requirements of constituent empowerment. And you talked about these earlier in differentiating your model, but I'm hoping we can look a little more closely at these essential 
requirements to sort of better understand what this means, you know, in practice on the ground. You know, the first of these is what you call operationalized participation and listeners to this podcast. There are definitely some law professor terms in here, which we will try to translate or interpret. So operational participation means making participation feasible. And then Professor Lee will has talked a little bit about that and hopefully we'll talk more about it. The second um, essential element is constituent primacy, you know, giving weight, as she has said, to constituent input. And then third is the structural accountability, providing ongoing um, oversight of the system itself. And so, Professor Lee, you contend all three of these are necessary to shift power to constituent voices and to prevent cosmeticism, which it, that's how you characterize it. And I, that's just a great word that I'm going to borrow in my future work. But can you walk us through these components? Like, let's start with operationalized participation. Can you tell us about the strategies you identify in your paper? Um, you call one of them double duty participation, another participation by proxy. Yeah, so both of these things make input from the public easier. And that's crucial because in cosmetic participation, people may often go through the motions of collecting input, but if it's really hard for people to volunteer their time to give such input, and plus on top of that, people are really not motivated to trust the agency to bother, right, to give that kind of input, then you're not going to get any input and it's not going to be useful. So making public input easier is key to a successful system. And the idea behind double duty participation is that you don't make people who are already being harmed by a system, you don't make them volunteer their free time to give more input. Instead, you use a structure where they're already engaged and already providing feedback. And so in this case with the water agency, that's the appeals process and the complaint system, right? And we have the administrative hearings process, we have the advocate's office, people are already engaged in these systems and you use all the input that you gather from those systems and use it to create systemic change as well. And so that way you're not burdening folks twice, right? To tell their stories and give their feedback. Then the other technique that we're discussing is participation by proxy. And that's, again, another way to reduce the burden of participation. So the proxy in the Baltimore model is the advocate's office. The advocate's office is by law required to work on behalf of customer fairness and to give great weight to customer input. And the advocate's office is a paid proxy whose job is to represent the interests of customers. And again, this lessens the burden on individual members of the public. And so of course, with proxies, there's always a risk that they could stray from their mission. And so there are also safeguards to keep the advocate focused and accountable to the public. You know, again, this just makes so much sense to me based on my work at the local level. And I'm actually really excited to, to share this with some of the municipal staff that ELI works with in various cities. Uh, let, let's turn to the second essential requirement of constituent empowerment, what you call constituency primacy. Again, you outline several strategies used in Baltimore. Could you tell us a little bit more about those strategies? Sure. So with the Baltimore Advocate, we wrote mandates into the law to make sure that constituent needs and interests are kept at the forefront, that they are the guiding star for everything that that advocate does. 
And so the law demands that the proxy must promote fairness to customers, must serve as a customer advocate, must resolve customer concerns, and create solutions that promote fairness. And, you know, in Baltimore, the advocate's office is technically housed within the water utility, and I would have preferred an independent setting, but for various reasons, we weren't able to set it up that way. But what we did do is we built into the law some pretty strong guardrails against interference and mission corruption. And so um, we borrowed safeguards that are in place for administrative law judges, for example, and for inspector generals, um, so that the advocate could be protected from any kind of mission creep. Again, that's just that's really interesting. Um, so we've hit two of the essential requirements and let's turn to the, the third essential requirement or concept you identify as structural accountability or basically consequences for poor behavior that need to be built into the participatory system in order to prevent only cosmetic outcomes. So, you know, you've already talked about this some, but is there anything else you want to add or you could tell us more about this, how it works in practice? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. I think the structural accountability part is really crucial. You know, participatory systems are mostly procedural, right? And there's not substantive guidance as to what the reform should be like, because what we're trying to do is listen to the public and use their guidance as the substantive reform. So the law is procedural in that way. And with procedure, of course, it can be abused. And, and the abuse here, as we've discussed, is the risk of purely cosmetic participation. So that's why the structural accountability for a participatory structure is really, really crucial. And in Baltimore, the structural accountability that we built in is primarily in the form of public hearings that are held every six months before an oversight committee. And what this means is that on a regular basis, there's a public hearing, public testimony, it airs out what is happening to customers. Are things getting better? Are they not getting better? What does the data say? What is the advocate doing? What are the outcomes of these appeals? What's changing? What's not changing, right? And these regular public hearings, they do a couple of things. They keep water issues on the front burner, right? So that they are regularly scheduled, we know that they are coming up. We know that there will be focused public attention on the issues. The hearings also invite press scrutiny, right? Invite media attention. And they also invite city council oversight of these issues. And so therefore, if the agency fails to make meaningful improvements, right? If they fail to listen to the public, then the city council can step in and they can legislate additional reforms if needed. And nobody really wants that to happen. Uh, so that is a built-in incentive for the agency to do better. That just, again, makes a lot of sense that transparency aspect um, here is that obviously is a really essential component. So thank you for walking us through all of this. We're going to shift over to a little less academic, more practical, though we've already been talking about a lot of the implementation aspects. But Tori, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you, Linda. It was really fantastic to hear about how Professor Lee's work could shape your own work in Nashville. On this thread, Professor Lee, 
Do you think there's potential for the CE model to be adopted elsewhere? Can other cities expect more, less, or the same number of challenges to implementing a CE model as Baltimore experienced? So it is my great hope that other cities will be able to adapt the model to their own situations and find it useful. Um, any governmental agency that needs to listen more to its constituents in order to make improvements I think could benefit from the model. I think long-standing and stubborn problems that don't have quick apparent fixes are especially well-suited. In terms of the number of challenges and the kind of challenges that might be faced, you know, the model will need to be adapted to every different situation and every city will have its own challenges and needs. But in the end, I think if you think about it as a long-term investment in changing the, the, the dynamics of who has power and who has voice in our government, then it's certainly worth thinking about um, how to make it work for your particular situation. Going off of what you just said, Professor Lee, about um, how this it is possible to implement the CE model elsewhere, what would you suggest as a first step for a city or organizers who are interested in adopting this model? And do you have specific advice for either these organizers or maybe government officials or employees in doing so? Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned organizers. I think the first step for everybody is to listen to the organizers, who are the people who are listening to the people, right? Listen to the organizers, the people, the activists who are already in your city and find out what they are saying that people need. And then think really hard about how to get those voices heard on a broader scale without too much burden on the participants. So that's whether through double duty mechanisms like we discussed or proxies or other ways that those voices can get incorporated. And then thinking about the accountability mechanisms, I would look for ongoing opportunities for monitoring, right? Ways to monitor progress. And most importantly, I think ongoing opportunities for complaining loudly and publicly, right? If there is no progress. So my guess is that you know, just like in Baltimore in the water system, there are parts of these systems already in place and just using them, making them uh, more robust, right? And bringing them together in a way that really enables voices of people to be heard more and not just heard, but specifically incorporated and to have true accountability for that process, the ongoing monitoring, the ongoing um, progress checks, and again, the opportunity for loud and adversarial complaining when necessary. Some of those things are already going to be in place more, more likely than not. So look for those opportunities and see if you can sew them together into a system that will work in your situation. I love uh, the theme of, you know, sewing together different efforts. I think that's a really good um, message to give to people. And I just want to say, you know, thank you again for providing this, these insights about the CE model and Baltimore. It's about time to wrap up. So I'm going to hand it back over to Linda for some closing thoughts. 
Yes, well, thank you, Professor Lee, for being here today and sharing your ideas and experiences in Baltimore. I just think there's so much potential for broader application of this model moving forward, and we look forward to following your work in Baltimore as well. And thanks to ELI Research Associate Tori Rickman and third-year Vanderbilt Law student Jane Dimwobi. And as always, a special thank you to our ELI Podcast Manager, Georgia Ray. Please look for the condensed version of Professor Lee's original George Mason Law Review article in the current August issue of Environmental Law Reporter, along with some really thoughtful comments from Chandra Taylor-Sawyer, who is a senior attorney and environmental justice initiative leader at Southern Environmental Law Center, and a comment from Latricia Adams, the co-founder and CEO of Black Millennials for Flint. The article and comments are also posted on ELI's LPAR website, Environmental Law and Policy annual review website, and a recording of the panel discussion about Professor Lee's article at Vanderbilt Law School is posted online as well on the LPAR website. Thank you so much for listening today, and please join us again soon for another Environmental Law Institute People, Places, Planet podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.